Hello, everyone, and welcome. My name is Jana Panaritis, and you're listening to the AgeWise podcast, where we give you strategies for aging well and wisely. And how do you do that when on top of struggling to meet the demands of your own life, you're also caring for an aging parent or a spouse, or maybe you're caring for another member of your family? Well, we're here to help. Each week, we'll hear from the experts, professionals in the field of aging, and people like you, unsung heroes rising to the occasion of caring for a loved one and finding unexpected rewards along the way. So stick around for some straight talk on aging in all its unpredictable glory. Laura Katz Olson has been a professor of political science at Lehigh University since 1974. She's studied aging policies in the U.S. for over three decades and has published widely in the field of aging, healthcare, and women's studies. But not even her deep knowledge of health policy could prepare Laura for what she encountered in attempting to access a number of healthcare services for her mother, who was slowly incapacitated by Parkinson's disease and a gradual loss of vision. Laura's new book, Elder Care Journey, A View from the Front Lines, goes beyond scholarship and into the realm of the personal as she documents her eye-opening, first-hand experience of many of the systemic flaws in U.S. health policy and with long-term care in particular. And yet, there were some bright spots. We're going to hear all about it in today's episode. I'm so happy to welcome Laura Katz Olson. Welcome to the podcast. Oh, it's a pleasure. Before we get into the book, tell us a little bit about your background. I know you grew up in the Bronx. Tell us a little bit about your family life growing up. Well, it was a very typical 1950s kind of life. The mother stayed home until the children were in grade school, and then she can kind of earn some pin money, but mostly depended on the father as breadwinner. And, of course, in those days, you could earn uh, a decent living, at least a family wage. My father died when I was 22, but my sisters were much younger. Mm -hmm. And, therefore, my mother, typical of those kinds of women, found herself uh, without any skills, without any real ability to earn a good living, and managed to support, to a limited extent, my two sisters uh, until they left home. Mm -hmm. As a result... Her Social Security benefits uh, were relatively low, and when she stopped working, eventually uh, at the you know normal retirement age, I think she was about 65 when she stopped working, she had very, very limited income. And this came home to bite both of us, of course, mm-hmm. when she needed long-term care. And you described your father as a traditionalist who you battled with in high school and in your college years. And then when he died suddenly, he was he was relatively young. This was the 60s, right? And you said as you were a senior in college, your mom was still young, and your sisters continued to live with her till they moved on. Laura, I know that you lost two siblings. Can you talk about that? Yeah. my The middle sister, uh, Denise, had MS when she was 45 years old. I think that's a typical age you get MS. She was a very extraordinarily talented artist and started to lose her ability to do art. She earned a living framing pictures as well, and she could no longer do that. And she had a really hard time finding uh, assistance. And eventually she deteriorated so much that she decided she didn't want to live anymore. Mm. 
It, it was a very carefully reasoned decision because she had discovered that her brain cells were getting hit by the MS as well. And so she committed suicide. And I think, you know, that was the right decision to make for her because mm-hmm. she didn't she didn't want to live a low quality life. And of course, that's the kind of issue that comes up with the elderly. It's not just how long you live, but it's the quality of life. Absolutely. You live. And then you have another sister. You had another oh, sister, my, Anne? Yeah, my youngest sister, Annie, who was a political activist and very involved in political issues, obviously. One day she came home from a trip to Washington and was spitting up blood, and turns out she had lung cancer. Mm. And it was kind of an aggressive lung cancer. That's one thing I learned is that lung cancer comes in different forms. She had the more aggressive kind, so she died as well. Mm. That was really tough, especially for your mom to see that, because there's nothing worse than losing a child. That's what all parents will say, right? Oh, I think so. I think think it was very tough for my mom. Uh, But at the same time, she was dealing with her growing blindness and her Parkinson's disease, so she was really hit from all ends. Right, right. She had her own issues to deal with as well. Well, your mom is quite a character, uh, it sounds <laughs> yes. like. She's a vegetarian who you write in your book obeyed most of the rules of her era but had a rebellious streak. She took up competitive bike riding in her 70s. She was still driving in her 80s, but her health took a major turn in her early 80s. Tell us about that, how she went from athlete to cane, as you, you wrote. Yeah, that that's uh, one of the more ironic issues. My mother uh, always took great pride in her health. She would never put anything into her body that was not healthy. She bought most of her food from health food stores, from organic places. Even though she had absolutely limited income, she always bought expensive organic food. <laughs> it used to irritate me when you know she had such little income that when I visited, I had to shop and pay for all the food. <laughs> So we were at Largaheads over that. Uh, I remember one time I insisted on going to a restaurant that had meat. So she took me to apparently a place that fed organic food to their cows because the bill was astronomical. Oh, my God. <laughs> so that was the last time I demanded meat at my mother's. <laughs> at her place, right. Yeah, she was definitely a character. You know, after my father died, she kind of turned into the person she had always described she was when she was young. Mm-hmm. She started wearing very 60s kinds of clothing, opened up a shop called Out of the Way Place, which sold 60s kinds of things, and was just a very carefree kind of person. Mm-hmm. I think the interesting thing about my mother is not her per se, but what she represented in her generation. I think the kind of situation where they ended up very poor and or low income in their old age is because of this dependence on, yeah. on a male as a breadwinner. I mean, if the husband didn't die, they could get divorced, and many, many got divorced when they were an older age. That's There's a, a wonderful book called The Way They Never Were. <laughs> huh. Oh, that's a really good title. Basically saying, you know, these women, while they were dependent on men for money, they also worked for pin money. They also worked. Mm-hmm. They just weren't paid commensurately. Right. We never have to forget that the uh, legal situation made them that way. Sure. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just as one example, my mother tried to buy a house after my father died, and they wouldn't uh, give her a mortgage because she was a single woman. Incredible. Yeah. 
So particularly her health ch changed in the early 80s and she was no longer living in New York. Uh, at that point, she was living in Florida. And, and when did she move to Florida? Let's see. About 1980, my mother moved to Florida. And did she live in an apartment? And where did she live in Florida? Well, originally she lived in some really run-down trailer place. And she had a run-down trailer that leaked, and her three daughters insisted that she leave that place. And so she ended up in public housing at a fairly young age, relatively young age, uh -huh. housing for the elderly. And how old was she at, at that time? I think she was in her 50s at that point, because oh. she was in that apartment for over 35 years. And you live in Pennsylvania, right? Right. And you became a caregiver from a distance. And she would come to visit you, and she was still driving. So she would drive up on her own. That's a long journey. Oh, she loved she loved driving. She absolutely she would camp her way up. She would she was a character, my mother. I mean, uh -huh. she'd go to campgrounds and she she camped her way up. <laughs> wow. She once tried to talk my aunt into coming with her and my aunt <laughs> basically said, I don't shit in the woods. <laughs> <laughs> So you said that as her Parkinson's progressed, her health care odyssey became mine as well. And you talked about your mom's application for a Medicare savings program when it was denied. And she asked you to look into it. What, what do you remember about that time when she first really started to need more of your help? It was the first time I realized how difficult it was to get help. And it was my first experience with helplines. Helplines. Yeah. Don't help. And my experience with the bureaucracy where they had these like very rigid rules and nothing, nothing could move anybody from those rigid rules. I knew that Medicaid required, because I studied Medicaid, and I knew that it required lots of documentation. But I don't think I really had understood how difficult it was to get the documentation or how extensive the documentation was. And again, how rigid they were about not really seeing the person, but rather the job. It was a eye-opening experience to realize that they were just going to take my mother's limited Medicaid. I think it was only $100 a month. It was her QI benefit, huh. which was part of the Medicare savings program. And what, what that does, my mother was not, I'll tell you the more interesting thing. My mother was not eligible for Medicaid in Florida. Her total income was $960 a month. So this Medicare savings program was people who had slightly higher income, and it would pay her Part B of Medicare, which is the physician piece. So it was $100 a month, and they just took it away because she had received a veteran's benefit for her caregiving. So she got a veteran's widow's benefit for caregiving. And as soon as, and I have no idea how they heard about it, but as soon as that hit the Department of Children and Families in Florida, she then got thrown off this Medicaid waiver. And I felt helpless. But the good news is that I knew a lot about Johnson's anti-poverty program from the 1960s. Mm-hmm. And I was able to contact a legal aide in Florida who actually just took over my mother's case and eventually got my mother's benefit back for us because they had taken it away illegally. They're not supposed to count caregiving income. So she eventually got that back. 
but that was the beginning, as you just said earlier, of, of my realizing we're on this together. <laughs> yeah. And, of course, Florida is one of those states that chose not to expand its Medicaid program. That's since the Affordable Care Act. Right. But yeah. it's relatively stingy in Medicaid benefits to begin with. I mean, mm-hmm. think about $960 a month and not being eligible for That's Medicaid. incredible. Yeah. That's nothing. So that sounds like the legal aid was able to step in and be an advocate for her right there. It was really helpful. Yes, yes. Um, I was very impressed. So she stayed in Florida on her own as her Parkinson's progressed. Well, we didn't even know it was Parkinson's. Right. Getting the diagnosis was, unfortunately, a long saga that should not have been. Because when we finally got to some decent doctor, they took one look at her and said, oh, you have Parkinson's. We need to confirm it. But one of the dismaying parts of this so-called healthcare journey we went through is that they saw an old lady who was shuffling and said she's depressed or old. Those are the two diagnoses we got a lot of. Like, what do you expect? She's old. (laughs) (laughs) Or her daughter died. She must be depressed. Now, Mm. you know, that said, my mother, of course, was depressed when my sister died. But she kept saying, this is not depression. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. (laughs) <laughs> I mean, she knew that something was wrong that uh-huh. had nothing to do with depression. So that got in the way of an accurate diagnosis, you know, seeing somebody frail and old and saying, oh, they're just old. And that's not unusual, I think. I think it's very common. You know, we don't have enough doctors who are gerontologists, really. Right. And then you took her to a place called the Chen Center? Yes, it was an amazing place. It was one of the reasons I was reluctant to leave Florida. Mm-hmm. I don't know how they did it. As I wrote in the book, I didn't bother to find out because I just was afraid to know. <laughs> Isn't it interesting that despite your, your usual professional curiosity, you just in this case, you just didn't want to know. It was too close to home or just... I, I don't know why, but I just couldn't figure out how, how they were able to provide my mother all these amazing services uh-huh. on her Humanor Advantage plan. I mean, it was just amazing the kind of care that she got. And I just couldn't imagine Humanor Advantage paying for all of this. So yeah, and this was I in Florida. I kind of turned and, a blind eye to it. Uh-huh. And this was still in Florida, in Hollywood, Florida, right? Is that, isn't that where she lived? She lived in Hollywood. The Chen Center had, I think, three places throughout southern Florida. Hmm. I wonder if they're still in business. I hope so. Oh, I assume they are. Well, I'm going to put a link to them on my website. They're amazing. Wow. Um, so how were they different? Well, first of all, their uh, clientele was the aged. Exclusively. Was, yeah. Just from the looks of the clientele, I, I think they had a wide range of income levels. They clearly knew who my mother was. Uh, I remember my first time I went with her, they said, ah, here's the daughter you've been talking about. So they took her as a person and not just simply as a card being put on the back of a door that the doctor looks at briefly before he (laughs) enters. They're able to take care of the whole person because they have specialists on site. They actually hire specialists. It was just a very friendly, bright place. You go in and there were cookies and treats and coffee and hot chocolate, which, as I say in the book, people would stuff in their pocket, you know, these old people, <laughs> Right. You know? Oh, of course. Taking little, little things home. <laughs> yeah, things yeah. Home. And they would just happily restock it. One of the best parts uh, is they had, they provided transportation, wheelchair-accessible transportation, 
And the doctor was really, really sharp. Mm-hmm. As I said, she took one look at my mother and said, you have Parkinson's disease. I mean, she didn't say it at the time, but she knew it. And so she sent my mother to an expert, you know, a specialist, I should say. Mm-hmm. And it was confirmed that that's what she had. And she, she was in her early 80s then. So she stayed in Florida for how long after that? I, I think maybe three, four years. Uh-huh. Continuing to live on her own. Right. But, you know, the Parkinson's wasn't the main problem. Because, you know, with Parkinson's, even though she was getting unsteady on her feet, the big problem was that she was going blind. And now she's totally blind. And that prevents her from living a life. Because if she wasn't blind, I could buy her a... One of those motorized scooters? Motorized, you know, wheelchair. Right. And she could have been pretty much taking care of herself. Mm-hmm. Was it glaucoma? Or? It was out-of-control glaucoma uh-huh. that... I can say that the optometrist, not the ophthalmologist, I should say, neglected her because Uh you never know for sure. But I think it was neglect because what I know about glaucoma is it's pretty much controllable. Yeah, you do get cases, and I don't know if my mother is one of those. You do get cases where you can't. But I suspect that it was because of the health care plan she had, and they didn't want to take the time to really monitor it and take care of it uh, as they should have, but I'll mm-hmm. never know for sure. And and, and the doc- doctors uh, protect each other, so I couldn't get anybody. I got, I got her red- medical records, but they were indecipherable for me, and I couldn't get anybody to really look at them. I got one, one ophthalmologist to look at it, and he was noncommittal, but you could tell he thought she had not been treated well. Mm-hmm. And then your mom was at two facilities in Florida where she received post-acute care. Tell us about those experiences that you also wrote about. Oh, I did. (laughs) Well, I have to say I had studied nursing homes most of my career and was not prepared for how awful they were. It was one of those things where I thought I knew, but the negligence the kind of flouting of federal rules and regulations. I got paperwork from both of the nursing homes a couple of years later, and it was so clear that there were half-truths, double-talk, lies, and as I write in the book, slapdash adherence to legalities and procedures. And it was so blatant when you read the things that they said. You had some positive impressions of the carers, though, didn't you? Not really. My mother's carer was probably the most loving, caring woman, but this is someone who had been caring for her in the house, not in the nursing home. The nursing home aides were overworked, underpaid, and it showed. They were not very interested in the patients. They ignored us. It was the first time that I really learned nursing home language. I'll be right back means there's going to be a change of shift and you'll never see her again. I'll be right there means they're going on break, and you'll never see them. (laughs) But the neglect was very, very clear. For example, they didn't want to walk my mother to the bathroom, you know, with a walker. So she ended up staying in bed most of the time. One of the more interesting things is that my mother went to these nursing homes for therapy. This was rehab. So she was not living there? No, this is post-acute care, which Medicare pays for. If you're in a hospital for three days or more, you get, you're entitled to post-acute care, mm-hmm. which essentially is letting you heal and rehabilitation. So my mother was in the rehab wing of the nursing home. 
And it was very curious because she got one hour at most of therapy a day. And in one of the nursing homes, they didn't have therapy weekends, (laughs) Mm. which was pretty shocking to me because the whole point was to get therapy. So there the Medicare is paying for a full day of nursing home care, and you can imagine what that cost. And they're giving her one hour, five days a week of rehab care. Mm-hmm. Was it your sense that, that this goes beyond just nursing homes in Florida? Oh, absolutely. I mean, well, even if you read Nursing Home Compare, which rates nursing home, which is the uh-huh. federal government, or you read government studies, the uh, general accounting office studies, it's pretty clear that the care in nursing homes across the country is abysmal. What was shocking to me, I mean, that I knew. Mm-hmm. But what I found shocking was how bad it was. Like, you can say the food is terrible, but when you actually see a meal put before a person that's inedible, it's a very different experience than writing the food is bad. When you talk about the overworked, underpaid aides and not having enough aides, that's another thing to see that when somebody has to go to the bathroom and rings the bell, nobody shows up. And to watch the person suffering because they can't go to the bathroom. Oh, it's heartbreaking. Yeah. So I think the extent of the things that I had studied, the experience of it was so different from the writing about it or the words. I mean, I was shocked, actually, even though I knew how bad nursing homes could be. (laughs) Right. What were some of the other aha moments you encountered that shattered your earlier convictions about assisting a frail parent? Well, I think, first of all, long-distance caregiving was much harder than I would have imagined. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the things is that your imagination's at work. Right. (laughs) That's such a good point. And situations need immediate care, and there you are, like, a plane ride away. So you can't really, you can't be there. Another thing that I think is really important, and I'm discovering that even more, my husband has been in the hospital. He's fine now, but... Mm -hmm. Uh, what I'm discovering is that you really need an advocate in the hospital and that hospitals are just not equipped for people like my mother. I will let others talk about the kinds of medical care they give, but these days they have nobody that could feed a patient that needs to be fed, change the adult diaper of someone who needs to have it changed. The needs of a frail elderly person just are not met in a, in a hospital. That was another aha moment. And you were the sole caregiver. I mean, yes. And that, that's tough. That's, that's a lot of pressure on you. In addition to having, you know, your own work and a husband and kids. My daughter is, is grown, but she was pregnant during this period. And it's very, very difficult. My grandson is now three years old. And, you know, when I go see my grandson, I have to take away time from my mother. And she doesn't take it very well because she's all alone. And there's nobody really to be there for her. So I feel torn between seeing my grandchild and taking care of my mother to say nothing about my work. <laughs> yeah. Well, did you ever consider the idea of your mother moving in with you? I did. But it just can't happen. My mother is too disabled. I couldn't lift her. I couldn't take care of her. The cost of home care is way beyond what people realize. I calculated and recalculated more than anybody could imagine how much that would cost, and it would just be impossible financially. To say nothing about making my life impossible. 
Plus, my mother is much too needy. Now she can't even walk. She has to be taken out of bed with a mechanical lift. And how did you happen to choose the nursing home that she's in now? Default. The five-star places I looked at wouldn't take her because you had to pay six months at least in private pay. That was another aha moment that a, a nursing home might say that they take Medicaid, but they do not unless you pay privately for a certain amount of time. Some of the others were just so awful, I just couldn't bear to put her in there, the ones that did take Medicaid. And this home looked better than some of the others, so I decided to put her in there. And how close is it to your home? It's actually only 15 minutes away. Oh, that's not bad. Yeah, it's on my way to work, too, which is nice. It, it's a county nursing home, and I was really hesitant about it. But it's turned out to be as, probably as good a place as you're going to get. Mm-hmm. I never expected to put her there for long. This was just I needed a place because my mother could not stay at home anymore. <laughs> she was getting kicked out of the nursing home, the rehab place. The rehab place, right. She couldn't go home. So this place had a spot, luckily, and that's how she ended up there. And, and when did she move in there, approximately? January 29th, 2013. <laughs> <laughs> wow. How's that for approximate? <laughs> there you go. So she was, uh, she was down in Florida until then. Kind yeah. of a mixed bag, though, because on the one hand, she's closer to you, but on the other hand, it must be really hard to see this now every day up close and personal, to see this decline. Oh, yeah. Although you develop some kind of thick skin about it. Yeah. Because if I were to think about my mother all day and how she's deteriorated mentally now in the last several months. So it's hard even to have a conversation now with her. She kind of talks in fantasy world. She mixes her dreams and reality. Someday she'll just say, I'm going home. And she doesn't really know where home is, and she doesn't really remember that she can't get up and pack her bags. Right. So if you think about that all day long, you'd go crazy. Yeah. Try to be there for her when I'm there, and I try not to dwell on it when I'm not. Laura, in, in the course of doing research for your book, you uncovered some pretty disturbing trends about the business models of nursing homes, like nursing homes are repeatedly bought and sold. What can you tell us about what you've learned, both through your personal experience about the facilities your mother was in, in that regard, and, yeah. and the others? Yeah, this is probably the more most interesting thing that I think people are not looking into. And if I was an economist or if I could find someone to work with me, I think this is the most essential thing. Because if you read some papers that I've been reading recently on how to improve nursing homes, it doesn't make any sense if you look at the business model. There's two models that are really antithetical to good care, and you can't really impose good care on them. And it's not just the profit-making, which they are, but they're also profit-making chain facilities. And their main goal is to pay stockholders because they're mostly on these stock exchanges. And these facilities, many of them separate the nursing home from the real estate and drain the nursing home. And it's, it's a very interesting process that's been going on, by the way, since the 1990s. The second trend, which is even more disturbing, which is more recent, is they're being bought up by private equity firms. And the goal of a private equity firm is to drain as much money out and then sell it, flip it in five years, 
or to have it increase in value and then flip it. But there's no pretense that they care about the quality of care. And studies show that quality of care in for-profit facilities are definitely different than in non-profit and county homes. So to me, this is the more interesting issue because when you read documents talking about how to improve quality of care, and I can give you a whole list of things that you should do, but they wouldn't fit into the model of increasing profits or paying the kinds of money that they pay the chief executives of these multi-chains, millions and millions and millions of dollars. And to me, what's the dark issue is that nursing homes get something like close to 50% of all of their revenues from Medicaid and Medicare. So taxpayers are paying for this. It's not just nursing homes, it's home care agencies as well, right? Yes. Home care agencies get even more of their money from Medicare, less from Medicaid, they're less dependent on Medicaid, nursing homes more dependent on Medicaid. But taxpayer monies are definitely paying for this. And what you're getting is is dismal, low-quality care. I think that's really surprising to a lot of people to know. And I only discovered this about home care agencies when I had to hire somebody for my mom when we were living in D.C. And I was trying to figure out how home care agencies get funded because if we're paying them $22 an hour, how can they operate as a company? And then I started worrying about how much does the aid get? It can't be very much of that well, hourly wage. Well, when my mother was paying six fifty, sixteen fifty an hour to rest care in Florida, I discovered because we got very close to the aid that mm-hmm. she was getting nine dollars an hour, and she was getting some small amount, which we were paying on top of the sixteen fifty for transportation, right. and they were paying her social security but no other benefits. So they were taking a large chunk of that off of what we were paying. In addition to being supplemented for their overhead by taxpayer money, right? Well, yeah. Well, Medicare wasn't paying for my mother at that time. Right. We were paying out of pocket. But yes, the agency is, I don't remember the exact amount they were getting from government payments, but it's a huge amount. So we're talking about billions in government funding. That's, oh, yeah, multi-billions. Multi-billions. I think that most people are under the assumption that a lot of these home care agencies are privately held and somehow their business model makes them successful or or relatively successful without any government funding. Oh, no, they're very dependent on government money uh, for their very existence. And nursing homes, of course, are dependent on government funding for their existence. And that's what makes it so ironic that they're providing such poor care. Yeah. It's what's often referred to as the medical industrial complex, right? Yes, it is definitely the the long-term care industrial complex. Yeah. I mean, but where does all that money go? CEO pay? And I mean, it depends on what we're talking about, I suppose. But Well, if, if, if you're talking about private investment firms, the main investor gets most of the money. And then you have secondary investors who get some of the money. But they're mostly interested in flipping, not keeping a a nursing home or a home care agency. They're mostly interested in building value for it so that they can sell it. And I would imagine that they take the same approach that they would to any other company that's being snatched up and is in need of investment money. They just cut staff. They cut costs wherever they can. Is that how the the first thing they do? The first thing they do is they cut staff. 
they drain it, basically. Uh-huh. And staff is the most important piece of a nursing home. I mean, one of the things about Graysdale is it's a rundown building. You know, elevators rarely work. <laughs> you know, the hot water sometimes gets too hot. Sometimes uh-huh. there's no hot water. <laughs> but they have amazing staff. They're unionized. And okay. staff is paid very good benefits and relatively high wages. Not great wages, don't get me wrong, but for nursing homes, they're paid relatively high wages, so they have very little turnover. Mm -hmm. Their own relatives come when they're old to stay there. It's like (laughs) a community place. So you can't really measure it by the paint or the floors or anything. It's it's the staff that count most in a nursing home, Mm -hmm. and of course in a home care agency, too. Right. So do you worry about your own future needs for health care? Uh, you can't help but note that quality of life is the most important rather than the extension of life. So I think about that. I do not want to live the kind of life my mother's living. And I definitely do not want my daughter to be burdened with my care. That I'm absolutely sure about. Have you talked about that with your daughter? I have. And her response is, oh, mom, I'll take care of you. Don't worry about that. I said, that's not the point. (laughs) I want you to live your life to the fullest. My husband, by the way, who's 74, has a mother who's 101 and a half. Wow. And a half. Yeah. (laughs) She'll be 100. Well, you start counting (laughs) months when you're that old. Absolutely. Wow, that's pretty amazing. How how old's your daughter? My daughter is 40. Um, And she's an only child, so... She's an only child, yes. (laughs) I think it's really great that you had the conversation with her, though, because we don't really have these conversations, most of us, until there's a crisis or, you know, someone else in the family starts aging at a clip. Yeah. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm, you know, I go, I visit my mom every day. I will have to admit I do not stay usually an hour and a half, usually stay more than an hour and a half. Uh-huh. That's a long time, though, still, every day. Does she still recognize you? Yes. That's yes, good. she does. That's good. And she counts um, on those visits. Well, because she's blind and sits in a chair all day, it's probably the only real stimulation she gets. Although they have nice activities, which she can't participate in because of her blindness, but they have a lot of wonderful music. They bring in a lot of groups, and she loves that. Yeah, that's great. But, you know, I confront it every day, and therefore I'm more aware that I don't want my daughter to have to deal with that. I don't blame you. Well, let's talk briefly about the politics of growing old in America. Have any of the presidential candidates put forth any policy ideas for long-term care that you think are viable or worthy? Tell us what you think about the candidates and what's on offer. Well, I I think, you know, the Affordable Care Act left out long-term care to a great extent. It had some minor items that didn't really do very much. And and the major reason, because uh, long-term care is expensive, and it would add billions and billions and billions to taxpayer uh, money. So I think the major, well, (laughs) major candidates, I'm thinking Trump, I mean, Certainly, long-term care is not one of the things on his mind, and I haven't heard anything that he's offered. And I think that Clinton probably will not make it a major focus of her presidency if she becomes president, because one, it's hugely expensive, and second, and probably more importantly, it's an issue that nobody wants to talk about. There's like 40, what, 45? 45 million people doing caregiving, but they don't want to really talk about it, which is why I think something that what you're doing is really critical. 
Because if you don't want to talk about it, it's kind of like the dirty secret that you're people doing this caregiving. If you don't want to talk about it and talk about the burdens and talk about how hard it is and how expensive it is and how challenging it is and how we need to have universal long-term care, if you don't want to talk about it, then the candidates and the uh, politicians just simply can ignore it. Why don't we talk about it? Besides the fact that it's expensive, which is true, but there's such a thing as incremental change and small bore policies. Not that they would be entirely satisfying, but I don't think it's just about money. That we don't talk about it. Right. No, no, I, I, I agree. I think we don't talk about it because, you know, women who are doing most of the caregiving uh, just sort of took it in stride as part of their job and their duty. And while they might complain to their friends, we're not willing to complain publicly. This is what we do as right. women. And, you know, we, we tend to have a lot of affection. Not always. I want to be careful about that towards our parents. Not everybody has good feelings. But we definitely feel a duty towards our parents. And we feel it's our job. And I think that there's a lot of people that think, oh, this is not the job of government mm -hmm. to step in. And I find that sort of ironic because the government pays for most of long-term care. <laughs> right. But we don't like to admit, we like to say government stay out of what we do and forget that the government actually is there paying for most of it. As we talked about earlier with nursing homes and home care agencies, a significant percentage of their income and revenues comes from uh, taxpayer money anyway. And we don't like to admit that either. I yeah. think people would be shocked to know that nursing homes uh, are mostly paid for by taxpayers. Well, can you tell us uh, what you hope to achieve with this book and why you chose to write it? Uh, a number of reasons. Let me start with the reason that I did not intend to publish it. I just did it for cathartic reasons. I love writing. It makes me feel good to write and putting it down on paper just relieved me of all kinds of tensions and it made me happy. I lucked out that SUNY Press uh, agreed to publish it, but it was not my expectation. But besides making myself feel better about my experiences, it started to occur to me that I felt so alone, you know, in my experiences, and that if people read what others go through, that they too would feel less alone. Like, oh, they're not the only ones doing it. And that's one of the reasons, by the way, the politics is people feel they're the only ones doing it. And they don't want to complain, oh, look, poor me, look what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. And they forget there's like 45 million others doing this. Mm -hmm. So I thought people feel less alone if they could read somebody else's experiences. And the parts about the ownership of nursing homes and home health agencies, I thought is really important to get out. And I wish somebody would really explore that further because that needs to be better known. And I think people would be very outraged if they understood the ownership structure of nursing homes and home health agencies. So that's information-wise that I thought was important to have. Uh -huh. Those are the three main reasons. But uh, originally, just simply to express myself, to get, get, it, get the frustrations out. Yeah, I'm paper. familiar with that. I want to ask you if you have any last thoughts for the listeners before we take off. I think people need to express either through writing or in other forms what they're doing, that as much as it's a, a wonderful thing to be able to take care of your parents and to do the things that caregivers do, 
It should not be the duty of uh, adult children to provide full-time care and that they need to make it clear to their uh, political leaders that this is an obligation that needs to be shared. To me, that's one of the most important things that I've learned is that this should be a shared obligation for society, not just individuals. You won't get an argument from me. (laughs) (laughs) I think what you're doing is great, really. I think it's important. Thank you. Okay, listeners, you can find out more about Laura's book by going to the AgeWise website. We'll have a link to her personal page on the Lehigh University website. And again, that very compelling and informative book is called Elder Care Journey, A View from the Front Lines. Laura Katz Olson, thanks so much for being on the show and for educating all of us on and off campus. It's been great chatting with you. And it's been a pleasure talking to you. Thanks, Laura. Bye-bye. That's it for today. Thanks for joining us. The AgeWise podcast is produced and edited by me, Jana Panaritis, and you can listen to the show and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The AgeWise podcast is also distributed on the nationally syndicated Speak Up Talk Radio Network, the 24-7 streaming and on-demand network that's always on for you. And don't forget to check out our website for more amazing caregiving stories from the field. Go to agewise.com. That's A-G-E-W-Y-Z or Zed, as my Canadian mother says, and find out how you can be a guest on the show. Remember, every caregiver has a story. I want to hear yours. Yours.